listening to Death of the Reader on 2SER. We are Flex and Herds, and it is time for our final episode on The House in the Mist and other stories. Heck yeah. I'm ready for this grand mystery that we've been presented before us, and we'll follow the culprit and try and catch them, and there'll be all sorts of strange puzzles. Yes. We right? are We are talking <laughs> to open today. The Hermit of Blank Street. And Yay. the street, we should say, the street is not named Blank Street. There's literally just a gap in the title. It's great. I yeah. love it. It's such a weird artistic choice. I do like it. We'll be talking about The Hermit of Blank Street, and then later on in the show, we'll get back to the final chapters of The House in the Mist. But right now, The Hermit of Blank Street is a very strange story. It's really hardly a mystery. It is um, hardly a mystery. About a third of it is a mystery, and it's not a terribly complicated one. You barely have enough time to think about the possibilities before the, the answer is revealed to you. So mm. the, the mystery is, well, I mean, I could summate the whole plot in about three sentences. Do it. House gets set on fire. Where did family go? We found family, and they're safe now. That's it. That's the plot. That's Done. the whole plot. Um, like, the mystery is, where did family go, right? Yep. That's a third of those three sentences. But we really only have about a minute's worth of reading to to ponder on that mm. before we realize, oh, the master of the house is going up to the, the up the stairs for some reason. What could he be doing up there? And then we realize that it's that's where the family is. And yeah, then we and go and we talk to them, and there's really not much tension at all. That's... Um, Pretty much the whole thing. Yeah. I should say, when I was initially researching this story, mm. it was sold to me by several outlets as a you know horror mystery story and uh-huh. two other more regular mysteries. <laughs> and I don't know whether that's mm. a piece of misinformation that's been spread because you know some review sites are a bit lazy, or whether it's actually like a genuine opinion. Because I guess technically it still is a mystery. Yeah, just I, not for very long. <laughs> yeah, I wonder if that's just to um, to make it more easily digestible. Like mm. in that sense, like when you're branding, you know, a, a murder mystery author's works, you don't want to be saying there is a horror mystery, a regular mystery, and then something that isn't really a mystery but is only a mystery. Like you don't you mm. don't really want to bore everyone with that. You want too to many say, words. There are three mysteries in here. Wonder at the magnificent stories within. You don't really want to spend that much time absolutely uh, worrying about it, um, especially not in this day and age. That said, for for all of the complaints about it not actually being a mystery, it it does still you know pose a few of the similar stylistic choices of yeah. the manner and the families mm-hmm. and what's going on there. So it still definitely feels at home in this collection. Yeah, and it has like a weird moral story to it, which I'm not sure if I'm 100% on board with, but hey. Definitely a bit (laughs) old-fashioned. Like, we find out that uh, Mr. Humphrey Allison, he does have a name. Yes. It's mentioned maybe once in the whole heckin' novel, but uh, he, he has his whole family chapped upstairs, and rather than reporting him to the police... Uh, our protagonist, Miss Delight Hunter, who's, again, crazy names, uh, she decides, ah, well, I don't want to lose the man that I love, even though he's held his his whole family up here in attic for five years. Um, so I'm going to go with this, this plan to get them back into his life while also not making him be arrested or commit suicide or anything. And I was just like, why? Why would you go to this much trouble when you could just go to the, the Bobby around the bend or the, the whatever it is in America, the Bobby equivalent, um, the regular policeman, I guess, whatever, boring, and and <laughs> <laughs> and just tell them that man has his family trapped in the attic. Go yeah. get him out. 
I mean, I guess one of the main things with this story is that, as the title might suggest, the location is rather inconsequential. Like, it's, it is. it's formally set in New York, but nothing about New York happens. Is it set in New York? You know what? I didn't. Even, I was picturing, like, two country houses the whole time I was reading this. I don't remember anything no, being said our, about our traffic two... or the bustling streets or whatever. I guess it was a long time ago. Maybe yeah, there were less I mean, our two, our two locations are the town that Delight is from, which we only ever hear of in mention, yes. and the two houses of the Van Dykes yep. and Mr. Humphrey. Oh my goodness, the Van Dykes. Isn't that a beard? Isn't that like a beard style? <laughs> Isn't that what that is? Just, I know I know that name from somewhere. I mean, I think you're right. Oh my goodness. Just, is that let like, me just jog over to the beard. Is that the twist? The beard wall, go grab one and see what it looks like. Dude. I mean, given all of the very literal names that some of these people have, such as, for example, so the funny. captured character being called Ransom. Oh my goodness. It actually isn't that far-fetched. That it's that's so, a- <laughs> like, it's such a strange contrast in that we have these characters named Ransom and Delight, um, you know, very clearly wearing their, you know, their motivations on their on their sleeves there. But we also have this this narrative of being stuck in an attic for five years, which isn't mm. actually played that like menacingly in the novel. It's portrayed as a crime, but we don't really like. It's actually not too terrible for the characters, apparently. Yeah, according it, to the author, which I is mean, strange. Even when Delight goes like, "Oh, hey, you know, I'll help you get out of here." the mother of the young daughter is like, uh, well, you know, that might be a bit difficult for my daughter because she's been shut in for so long. It's like, what? She's never seen the sun and, you know, we just want to give her a couple more weeks before we do that. What are you doing? Get out! Leave! Like, I do not understand what's what's happening. It's very strange. I I will say, though, I did enjoy this story as a five-minute, you know, over-breakfast kind of story. Yeah, good. Like, it's written as though it's very serious, Mm. It reads a little bit silly, and I wonder yes. if that's just because it's dated. I, I don't know. I feel like it has to be because it doesn't seem. Well, it, there are some moments that seem self-aware, like when when the the characters actually call out the fact that the decisions that the protagonist's making to marry a man that she just met because his house was on fire. Mm. She it points out that's kind of silly. There's a there's a bit of it, uh, it doesn't have the same feel of self-awareness that no. uh, the Ruby and the Cauldron did. Which is also in this collection. Yes. That that novel is much more, I would say, cleverly written. Mm. Not that we're a critic show by any means, but if we were, <laughs> Ruby and the Cauldron gets gets a higher mark, so it gets like an A minus, whereas this gets like a like a B plus. I suppose the other thing to address, which I did touch on earlier, was the collection itself. Like, obviously, mm. I said that this doesn't feel out of place in the collection. Yeah. And even though I do feel a bit cheated by the fact that I was told this was going to be three mystery stories, I did read through before and make sure that this was something I'd be happy having on the show. And, like, there were enough mystery elements in this collection that I thought it was worth having and talking a bit about different kinds of mysteries and how you can have a story that has a puzzle without a detective or without a perspective that's trying to solve it as we go along. There are murder mysteries that are branded for people who want to spend a lot of time thinking about them and staying up late. I can enjoy a murder mystery story like this or a detective story like this just as much as I would uh, any other one. Just a, a matter of investment, I suppose. Yeah, I think the other thing that I find fascinating about these stories is given how short their length is and how much I think they're able to fit into that time how murder mystery TV shows do the same in what is effectively the same amount of time. Like, I think these stories are closer to the kind of things you'd get from a television adaptation than you would the full logic puzzle breadth of a conventional uh, detective mystery. Yeah. All that, uh, all that, um, 
we'd have to do with these stories is give them all the same detective, which wouldn't be too terrible, mind you. And we'd have a serialized like set of stories about this one detective who goes from case to case. Um, I actually think that'd be pretty, that'd be very easy to do actually now that I think about it. Um, yeah, I mean, those sorts of stories or those sorts of epics that go from story to story and tale to tale are often the, the t- detectives that we that stay with us, like Sherlock Holmes, for instance. Yeah, I mean, even when I look at, like, you know, the long-running television series from the UK of Poirot and Miss Marple, yeah. you know, those adapted full books into half-hour to hour-long episodes, and I think that in terms of doing justice to the source material, those are maybe some of the ones that get closest mm. to the original text. And reading stories like these, like Anna Catherine Green's short stories here, makes me so much more impressed with the people that go through and adapt those things for television. We spoke a few weeks ago with Andrew Fallon about mm. you know adapting murder mystery for stage, and he said that it was a lot more difficult for television because you have so many more things that have to be on screen. And I think that these stories kind of exemplify that in written form. Either way, that was <laughs> The Hermit of Blank Street. Excellent. A strange story indeed. A very weird one. I don't know if I'm better off, if my life has been richer for having read it or not. I, hey, I reckon I reckon you are. It I was, reckon you're better off. It was, I don't know if that's true, but it was a very short story. It was the epitome of a short story. It was perfect. Just the way it is. <laughs> All right. This is Death of the Raider. Stick around. You're listening to Death of the Reader on 2SCR. This is Flex and Herds having a chat with Dr. Stephanie Russo, a lecturer at Macquarie University. Stephanie, welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you for having me. Today we'll be covering the finale of House in the Mist, authored by Anna Catherine Green. Stephanie, I know you have a a vested interest in novels as old as the the 18th century. Could you tell us why readers should pay attention to novels that outdate us by entire generations? Because why wouldn't you? (laughs) Because (laughs) history is is interesting and I think that in order to understand where we are today with murder mysteries, with crime fiction, with detective fiction, it's really important to to look back at the history of the genre. I think that um, some oddnesses around... um, you know, the structure and form of, of um, crime fiction and as well as the preoccupations of crime fiction are really much more understandable if you go mm. back to the kind of origins of the genre. And I'm really interested in the origins of the genre in the in the gothic mode because that's where we really see crime fiction come from. Um, it develops out of the gothic that was really a huge genre in the 18th century. So mm. that's when you get um, an interest in things like haunted houses and murders and evil and craziness and all of these kinds of themes that we now see manifested in in Mm. crime fiction. I think one thing that stands out to me through all of these genres, particularly with the gothic modes that you're talking Mm. about, is when I think of authors like Edgar Allan Poe, I think more of the atmosphere and the tone and Mm. the setting, whereas when it comes to murder mysteries, I'm thinking puzzles, I'm thinking intrigue. Why is it, do you think, that these different approaches to stories are reflected differently in people's minds in terms of the visuals versus the content? I suppose there's a bit of a break in, in crime fiction. We In the 19th century, you get the kind of atmospherics that, again, you said were, were associated with somebody like Edgar Allan Poe. That's certainly true. But then when you get to the golden age of crime fiction and you talk more about the Agatha Christie's, your Dorothy Sayers, people like that who are writing sort of classic puzzles, I think that's when you get a kind of tonal shift into that more concentration on the on the puzzle aspect. That's not to say that there's not a kind of 
atmospherics involved in that sort of writing, but you get more of a um, classic puzzle structure in the more golden age of crime novels as compared to the earlier stuff. I think you also get that tone carry through in some of the noir novels that we associate with the American crime writers of that kind of golden age of crime. So you're thinking about their your Raymond Chandler's, um, your Dashiell Hammett's and so forth. There are um, uh, a large number of, of, of female authors. You've mentioned a, a couple of you know, Agatha Christie, Dorothy yeah. Sayers, The Four Queens of Crime. Why are there so many prominent female authors that, that stand out in that genre? Is there mm-hmm. something to that? I think that it was a genre that women could enter into because it was a genre that was um, associated with, um, I suppose, genre, as in genre not literary fiction. So it was seen as something that women could write, perhaps. Um, so I think it was a it was a genre that women could kind of smuggle subversive messages or subversive critiques of the social world into their novels quite um, easily and without kind of really um, making it apparent what they were doing. So I think it was a nice kind of, of way for women to enter into the world of, of literature in a sort of safe way, if that makes sense, even though we are talking about crime. <laughs> Uh, you mentioned uh, the concept of gothic modes uh, mm. earlier on. How is uh, crime fiction a reflection or, a, or a, a representation of the development of gothic modes? So the gothic is, is you know, this kind of almost at a blanket genre that sits on top of all of these genres that have come out of it. And when you look at the development of crime, it's, an, it's a kind of offshoot of gothic. So... Um, if you think about somebody like Edgar Allan Poe, who we've already mentioned, he's writing gothic fiction in the mid-19th century and he writes The Murders in the Rue Morgue, which is one of the first crime stories, okay, and that has a detective in it who is it's one of the first detective fictions. And so then you get um, coming out of that people like um, Arthur Conan Doyle with his Sherlock Holmes stories, which again reflect gothic kind of modes of writing mm-hmm. Um, but as well are moving towards more that puzzle kind of crime fiction that we've talked about because the Gothic is all about, you know, darkness and crimes and murders and deaths and um, things that go bump in the night, so to speak. The thing that crime does is allow that to be kind of addressed or give it a mechanism for potential um, resolution perhaps. And remember this is the time too when we have the development of the police force. Mm. You know, so we have people who are really being detectives. And so that interest, I suppose, in the detective novel in the 19th century is really reflecting what's going on in the world. There are a lot of big crime cases in the 19th century um, that people were very, very interested in. And so the Gothic really transmutes into crime. It becomes its own kind of beast and it becomes what we now know today as crime fiction. But you can see its roots there in the Gothic that I think um, is really interesting. And if you if you consider I think crime writing as a kind of historical phenomenon, it becomes deeper and richer in, in your reading. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned the, the development of police force and, and this prominence of, of actual crime being mm. publicised and sensationalised even. Um, it's curious to see how crime fiction writing almost reflects that cultural change and that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's easy to write off crime. You know, it's formulaic. It's all about, you know, the puzzle. It's not, you know, about characterization or it's not about, you know, deeper concerns. But if you think about it, crime is a nice way of kind of articulating what's wrong with society. Mm. It's it's a way of pushing at social ills. It's looking at things like domestic violence, violence within families, violence within the home. It could also be about, you know, violence out on the streets. Um, but it's actually getting at a lot of kind of social issues and concerns, right? So if you think about, again, to use the example of the dry, 
the Australian crime novel that became really big a couple of years ago. That's all about um, violence related actually to drought, violence related perhaps to climate change, violence within the family, right? So crime is reflecting, it's not just, you know, fun in for the, you know, can I figure out the murderer kind of aspect, but it's about crime in the social world. Yeah, I do find that interesting, particularly when we look at something like science fiction, which is often credited as like one of the main genres that does social critiques, Mm. like those sorts of things on climate change and social injustice. Mm. But then when we compare science fiction and crime fiction, they're kind of very separate genres because a lot of crime fiction is founded on, you know, fairness and understanding and something that is plausible, whereas science fiction is anything but. Do you think that those two genres have parallels or ways that they interlink with their critiques of social spaces or is that entirely separate approaches? No, I think that's really interesting. That's a great question. Um, I think that they're, you know, that's not something I've really thought about before, but as I'm, as, as you were saying that, I think they are actually closer than they appear because they're both using the kind of mechanisms of genre to think through things like what could, what, what is possible, right? What is um, a problem? in the social world or the social landscape, what could we do to prevent that problem or think through that problem from a new angle? And crime, you know, it likes to present itself and I think sometimes can be quite realistic, but it also can be not realistic in many ways. You know, I was thinking about um, the crime show The Bridge. I was teaching that this semester and I was talking about it with my students and we all realised how ridiculous the storyline is. Now, I love the show. Um, I think it's fantastic, but it, it... features a murderer who has the most convoluted plot, right, and, you know, uses the media in this way that is almost clownish, really, um, if you think about it kind of from a would-this-actually-happen perspective. So in many ways I don't see them as, as, as I'm talking, I'm realising that they're not actually so different. Mm. Um, you know, most crimes, you know, if you speak to police and, and detectives and um, prosecutors and lawyers and so forth, I'll tell you most crimes are really prosaic. Most crimes occur within families. The victim and the, and the perpetrator are known to each other. Mostly they get caught straight away because these kind of evil geniuses don't really exist. So in a way they're almost science fiction. Yeah. You know? <laughs> it, it does remind me now that you mentioned the bridge, there's a variety of like Scandinavian thrillers that kind of bridge that gap between sci-fi and crime where we have like, you know, the mysterious alien thing that's landed in this small town that's <laughs> yeah. causing everyone to go crazy and commit crime. Like that's definitely, a, I, I wouldn't call it a trope, but it's something I've seen more than once. So that's definitely an interesting way to kind of put a bridge between those two genres. And often pun intended. Well, that was yeah. awful. That was awful. <laughs> I didn't even get the the, the pun at, st- at first, but yeah, I agree that was awful. No. <laughs> Thank you. Somebody has to agree with me on the show. But I mean, a lot of science fiction also too has crimes in it, yeah. right? You know, like or, or there's a kind of central kind of mystery as well. Yeah. I mean, even if you go back to thinking about things like I don't know, Star Wars. Yeah. There's crimes, there's murders, mm. there's things that need to be avenged. So I think that they're actually much closer mm. than perhaps people think about. And certainly something I hadn't thought about before this, so thank you. <laughs> yeah, it's very interesting to think about the concept that a lot of, I would call, highbrow science fiction, Star Trek comes to mind. Uh, shout out to Star Trek. 
<laughs> the mystery is not necessarily crime itself, but exploring a new planet, exploring a new civilization, learning things about humanity through the way that we interact with them. Mm. There's this mystery going on that the characters have to kind of work their way through with science, um, with puzzle-solving abilities, one might call it, which is something that all murder mystery, uh, or you know, most murder mystery seems to break down to anyway. But I think, too, that quest to find something new, the quest to figure it out, the quest to come up with some kind of definitive answer, is common to science fiction and crime. We want to know the answer. Yeah. We want to figure out what happened. We want to reconstruct stories. And I think those that's, again, another kind of resonance between the two genres. You're listening to Death of the Reader. This is Flex and Hertz with Dr. Stephanie Russo. Thank you for joining us today. No worries. Happy to talk about crime anytime. <laughs> we are talking House of the Mist and we'll be back in just a second. You're listening to Death of the Reader on 2SER, and we're here for the final drink of The House in the Mist, the final draft. These are all terrible puns. I just, why am I even here? I know. Flex, (laughs) what are you doing to me, having me in this room, telling me about drinking and how tough it is to swallow the truth sometimes of the grand mystery. We are chatting the last two chapters of The House in the Mist and the story as a whole and how fair it was, as we often do (laughs) with these murder mysteries. And I just, I love it. I love this story. It was very fun. It was not quite as ridiculous as I had hoped, but Uh, it was getting there. It was definitely just within the bounds of realism, but it was still completely off the walls, bananas by the end, which is great. Um, I think when I got to the beginning of chapter three, I so badly wanted it to just go violently supernatural as we'd been hinting at in the past two weeks. Demons and vampires. But I think that what was actually written here was so compelling that I didn't, it didn't matter to me that that's not what I got. Yeah. The way that the novel, uh, especially in the last two chapters delivers its, its gut punch that all the characters who assembled here have, have, you know, killed, Uncle Anthony previously and that they're all getting their comeuppance. The way that we are presented that is so beautifully done despite only being, you know, 20 minutes of reading, something like that. Maybe yeah. a little bit more. Uh, I, mean, I The line I initially wanted to finish on uh, if we had decided to go halfway through chapter three was the bottle from which your glasses are to be replenished for this final draft. He has himself provided. Andrew Popel? Is he here? <laughs> Is he serving drinks? No. No. I feel like if you ever if we ever meet Andrew Purple again, don't take his drinks. He's I, trying I to poison us. That's a wise us. idea. He's given us that little glass bottle, and it's got the skull on the outside. You know the one. I know the one. You've seen those those cartoons. You don't drink from those. Final like draft is on Saturday that. mornings on Two SCR. If you wanted to check out Andrew's work, other literature shows on the station, but. I really loved how this story built up to that moment, the way that we got clues that, you know, everyone was guilty and you could leave if you felt like you were, you know, that resigned to your guilt and the fact that Smeed won't ever touch the food. Yes, I will say one of the clues, I will will contest the the fairness of this murder mystery bit. I don't know if I get points or not. You can can tell me, I guess. I probably won't. But the one clue that I was really frustrated that I missed was when Smeed... He goes on and on and on about welcome everybody. And then they're like, who's this new guy? And he's like, hello, I'm just someone who's wandered in out of nowhere. And he says, all right, you need to go outside, but don't touch the food. The food is for us. You cannot <laughs> eat the food because it's poisoned. That's why he doesn't want to eat the food. 
as one of the clues that I missed on my first read through, and I was very sad. Yeah, about. I, I do think I do think this story is fair in what it asks for you to solve, which is not very much. We don't have a detective, we don't have a corpse, we don't have well, none of it is on screen. It was well, yeah. sort of the murder of of the uncle has happened in the past somewhere yeah. else. We have the the portrait as the proverbial corpse, but uh, we don't really have any death on screen until. It's all resolved. The mystery yeah. is, in, in a way, what is going to happen to these characters. Spoilers, they all die, I, I think. I really did love the moment <laughs> when Hugh Austin was like, this is going too far. I'm going to step out of this cl- cupboard that I'm watching this all yes. from and show myself to everyone. And no everyone knows. was just so distraught at that point yeah. that no one noticed him. That's beautiful. I like that that moment. It tells us more about Hugh Austin as a character than I think the entire novel yes. where he's He's, he's pulled upon by impulse and emotion to eject himself out into the open, which I think also is shared by the reader in that moment. It's, yeah, very, I think it's very well played. That's definitely why Hugh Austin works so well yes. as a reader perspective, because he has that desire to know more. And mm. it's not the kind of story that will ever tell you like, hey, you should be thinking about and yes. solving this like a lot of detective mysteries do. Yeah. But Hugh Austin creates that desire for you. Yeah. He doesn't. He's not a detective in the sense that he doesn't investigate things and pick up on clues. He just. He just. He's like a sponge. He just mm. kind of soaks up what's happening around him, and then he bursts right at the end. Yeah, and I then mean, everybody's dying. So I think that the two core mysteries of this story are what happened to Anthony Westenhall mm. and what is going to happen. And yeah. those are both questions that Hugh Austin, you know, searches for. He tries sure. to find the answers for. And I think that the way that he goes about that, where he's listening at boards of the walls, where he is spying in on meetings, where he's, you know, thinking to himself, well, geez, what, who are all these evil mm. people? Why are they so evil, 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 evil? They're evil. Yeah. They are sinful creatures. It's it's really excellent. And yeah. I think that basically the the challenge in this story is, can you figure out that they killed Anthony Westenhall before the letter mentions it? And can you figure out that Anthony Westenhall intends to poison before the fact that the bottle is green and marked just like this one is Dude, mentioned? Yeah, the big skull. That was the giveaway. Uh-huh. At that moment, you figure it all out. You know exactly what's going on. Yeah, I, I actually really enjoy the the way that uh, this novel tackles sin as a concept, mm. which is kind of a lofty, you know, sin. It's, it's bad things that we do. But the way that Anna Catherine Green uh, approaches this in a similar way to Emil does, where the, um, the sort of savior of the the good guys is that they they are flawed. They are pure to a fault. There's this assumption on the part in, in the story um, of Anthony that only the characters who are truly sinful will not leave the room. And it also reinforces that narrative that it is the sinless ones who who get away at the end. It's the characters who do the right thing, uphold the moral codes of society, et cetera, et cetera. They're the ones who don't get poisoned and uh, make it away with a baby. It would seem that that gentleman at the start is the person who poisoned the food. Mm. Um, I could very easily see Anna Catherine Green taking that concept of a, a character who just you know, carries out vengeance on murder victims and turning that into a series. That'd be yeah, perfect, I actually. almost feel like that's the kind of character that's maybe just going to show up in one of Anna Catherine Green's later yeah. novels as like, oh yeah, and there's this guy who was arrested for being a serial murderer going around <laughs> and leaving poison for so this is like apple pie around. Yeah. Ooh, delicious apple pie on the window. So, oops, something's wrong with me, chest. Um, I don't know why I went a little bit Irish there. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, I, I love a recurring character like that. And I think, honestly, that's what really 
that's what really cements a lot of murder mystery fiction in my mind is when we have those really recognizable detectives and characters and villains like we have Sherlock and Moriarty, obviously. I mean, as we covered in the LaRouge case, that's yes. basically how uh, Monsieur Lecoq, Emile Gaborio's most famous detective, was introduced as yep. a side character. Yep. And that sort of thing is always fun to watch. Watching the ride, I realize, you know, this is this is a character I'm going to stick with. This is how I develop them. Um, and it means you just have a lot more time to to get to know them, I suppose. Mm. Yeah. I hope you've enjoyed The House in the Mist and Collection. I certainly had a fun time, even if it was a bit of a strange departure from our usual usual field of operations. It was, it was. I would even say it was an outlier uh-huh. in the detective fiction uh, genre. Are you about to tell me that it wasn't fair for some I'm, absurd reason? I'm going to tell you... <clears throat> There simply must be a corpse in a detective novel. I recognize these words. And the dead of the corpse, the better. Oh, goodness. Sir. Is this what I we think We are it is? going on a journey. I mean, we're not going that far. We're still in America. In fact, we're just going down the block. We're going New down York. the block. But <laughs> we went down the block. We're going to S.S. Van Dyne's uh, publishing office uh-huh. firm, whatever it is that whatever he had back in the day. And we're going to be reading the Benson case. The Benson murder case? Yeah, the Benson murder case, uh, in which we're going to be following uh, Philo Vance. And his uh, premiere adventure. So good luck to that. I wish. Uh, well, hope hold you have a good on. Time. What chapters, herds? What? Well, we're doing chapters one to eight. All dummy. right. Okay. <laughs> Just call me a dummy before I've even solved the story. You won't solve the story. I will this is the one. The story. This is the one that I'll stump you on. There has to be one. I guess we'll also have to tell the fine people about the Van Dyne rules, which we've addressed a couple of times, but never explicitly. We'll have to go through all 20 of them. They're a bit wordier than the Knox Commandments, but hey, I think we can do it. Oh, goodness. Like a little movie, you know? (laughs) Next time on Death of the Reader. (laughs) 